Rather than the text printed in the bulletin, the text from my message is a single verse from John 4 that we read together just a moment ago, the 23rd verse in which Jesus said, The hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. There are three characters whose lives are referred to in the New Testament that I have heard maligned over and over in my years as a Christian. One of them is the rich young ruler, who I've been assured countless times came within a hair's breadth of being saved, but turned away at the last possible moment and slipped into that eternal destruction that is hell. Another is Zacchaeus, a tax collector who lived in Jericho, whom I've heard described as a hard-hearted, greedy man who cheated and swindled his way to great wealth until he met Jesus. And at the instant of their meeting, his conscience came alive He recognized the enormity of his sins and pledged himself to make full restitution, even if doing so ruined him. And the third of this trio was an unnamed woman of Samaria, whom Jesus met seemingly by accident at the well of her village. I've heard her vilified as a tramp, as a homewrecker, as a wanton hussy, until she met Christ. She was transformed on the spot and became instantly so credible a witness that many of her neighbors rushed out of town to meet this man who had made so great an impact on her life. In my opinion, none of this bears careful scrutiny. The man that we know as the rich young ruler was born again probably before his conversation with Christ. And his will be one of many faces that we recognize in the crowd surrounding the throne of God in everlasting glory. Zacchaeus was a righteous man before the Lord came walking down his street. He was a man who, in spite of the opprobrium heaped upon him because of his profession, was committed to honesty and fairness. In fact, when he declared this in the presence of his critic, none of them scoffed or corrected him. His name is also in the Lamb's Book of Life. And in her conversation with Jesus, we find much evidence that this woman at the well was one who was also hungering and thirsting after righteousness. She was a woman for whom life had been very difficult, but one who remained devoted to God and intensely curious about things related to God. A significant portion of her conversation with Christ, a portion that she initiated, had to do with the proper worship of God. In this conversation, the one that we call Lord makes three very important statements about worship. He says that we must worship God. He says that we must worship God in spirit, that we must worship God in truth. And this is the outline for my sermon. Jesus said that we must worship God. A person reading through the scriptures eventually comes to the 14th Psalm, where he reads this, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men 
And curious, the reader asks, what's God looking for? In John 4, Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, answers this question. He says, the Father is looking for people to worship him. Diogenes was a Greek philosopher who lived a little over 300 years before Christ was born. His Being called a philosopher is probably just a little bit of a stretch. If he lived among us today, we would probably refer to him as a hippie. He disparaged and shunned the most basic of the accoutrements and standards of society. His public manners were more like the stray dogs that he admired than the people among whom he lived. Nothing of note survives him. What we know about Diogenes is largely from stories that circulated about him. And one of the most famous of these involves a conversation between this philosopher and Alexander the Great. Alexander had learned about Diogenes, was quite impressed by his reputation, and sought him out. He found him basking in the sun in some public place. He approached the philosopher and very humbly asked, Sir, is there anything that I can do for you? And yes, the philosopher said, you can move out of my son. Diogenes is most famous for his penchant to walk around a city in the brightest of days carrying a lantern before him in the hope that someone would ask him, why are you doing that? So that he could say cynically, I'm looking for an honest man. Diogenes was looking for an honest man. The Marine Corps advertises that they're looking for a few good men. The one we call Lord said that God is looking for people to worship him. These words of Jesus speak directly of the highest goal of God for the highest of his creatures. We also find it animated in that history of human events compiled and edited by God for the instruction of succeeding generations. The first recorded act in fallen human history is an act of worship. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, we find Cain and Abel bringing their sacrifices to the family's altar. The first thing Noah did after the flood was to build an altar and to worship the God who had saved him and his family. The first act of Abraham as he crossed the border of the land that God promised to him and to his descendants was to build an altar and to worship the God who had led him safely on his way. We look at the Old Testament law. And we become aware that there's more material in that law that relates to the subject of worship than to any other, and perhaps to all others combined. In the historical books of the Old Testament, we learned that one of the main impediments to righteousness of the Hebrew people was the attraction of the false religions of their neighbors. And in the prophets, we read of time after time where God commissioned a prophet to warn the people about the consequences of their infidelity and to call them back to the worship of the one true and living God. We turn to the New Testament, and we are impressed by the faithfulness of Jesus in attending services in the synagogues 
and in the temple of Israel. And on the basis of that discovery, we urge those who say of themselves, I can be a good follower of Jesus and not go to church, to notice that the footprints of the one they claim to be following pass through the portals of a place of worship every Sabbath. In the book of Revelation, we discover that the worship that begins on earth continues out into that eternity that transcends time, that eternity where God sits enthroned, surrounded by the angels chanting his praises, and where the endless joyful songs of the redeemed are heard. Among those who truly believe in Jesus Christ, these songs don't begin when they step across heaven's threshold. They begin in time and are only perfected in eternity. The Bible calls all who will hear to worship God. In Psalm 95, we read, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And when the psalmist said, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, it isn't evangelism that he has in mind, but worship. The Bible in general, and our Lord Jesus in particular, say that it is our duty as well as our privilege to worship God. Jesus also said, that we must worship God in spirit. I believe that the word spirit, as Jesus uses it in the context of that conversation with that woman, does not refer to some technically defined part of the makeup of human nature, but is rather simply referring to the inner man, to the hidden part of us. The woman had asked him about the geographical or the physical location of true worship. And Jesus calls her and our attention away from the physical setting of worship to the inner setting of real worship. Jesus said the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. By this, I understand Christ to mean that the most dignified of people sitting in the most beautiful of churches, reading the most eloquent of words from the printed page, and enjoying the music of the greatest of choirs are not necessarily engaged in real worship. There are two stories in the Bible that illustrate this point. One is found in the first book of the Old Testament and the other in the third book of the New. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, we see two men at worship. There is no recorded difference in their posture or their conduct. As they were taught by their father, they bring their sacrifices to the altar in apparent acts of worship. The men, of course, are the brothers Cain and Abel. The only difference that meets the eye between the worship of these two men has to do with the gifts that they bring. Cain brings sheaves of grain from his harvest, and Abel presents a lamb from his flock. But we dare not make anything of this difference, because the law of God that was given later indicates that both of these sacrifices were required by God. Both of these sacrifices were acceptable to God. But the Lord saw what no human eye could detect. 
while the one brother was just going through the motions of worship. The other brought his gift in heartfelt thanksgiving for the mercies of God. And at the end of the day, both knew that the worship of the one was accepted and the worship of the other was rejected. To Cain, worship was merely an empty form that society required of him. To Abel, worship was the substance of life. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a story told by Jesus that makes the same point. It's a parable featuring two men who went into the temple to worship at the same time. One was a Pharisee, a man fastidious about the superficial observance of religious tradition. The other was a tax collector, a Jewish man despised by many for his choice of professions. To anyone standing nearby, the worship of the Pharisee would have seemed flawless. His dignified manner, his robe, his eloquence, his seeming sincerity. But beneath this pious appearance, Jesus said that he was, in effect, congratulating himself for his piety. According to Jesus, he prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And then he went on to remind God as if God did not already know, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess. But the other man, Jesus said, could not bring himself to even lift his eyes toward heaven, but beat his breast and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. According to the Lord, it was not the proud religious Pharisee whose prayers were pleasing to the Lord, but those from the humble heart of this tax collector. Real worship, worship that is pleasing to God, originates in the heart and in the mind, and is then expressed in the language of our meditations and our prayers and our songs. Real worship is the awareness of who God is and what God has done and our response to these things. It's knowing the terrible power and holiness and justice of God and kneeling in fear in his presence. It's knowing the unspeakable glory of his majesty and standing in awe of him. It's knowing the reality and the depth of our sin and rejoicing in the assurance of the even greater scope of his mercy. It's being overwhelmed by the grandeur that is God. It's being amazed that he should choose to make us his own. But real worship is more than such thoughts and feelings. It's also the effort of our stammering tongues and our limited vocabularies to express such things to God in the form of our praise. Real worship might involve laughing out loud in the presence of God. It can be shouting the language of praise. It might be weeping at the feet of our merciful God or simply sitting quietly in the euphoria of his presence and his grace. None of these things can be written on paper to be repeated by a congregation. The hymns that we sing, the prayers that we offer, the thoughts that we share are not in themselves worship. But in the best of all worlds, or in the best of all churches, they encourage and facilitate the real worship of good Christian people. Jesus said that we must worship God in spirit 
He also says that we must worship him in truth. If you and I were going to start a new church, there would be a lot of questions that we'd have to sit down together to answer. Questions about theology, about the government of the church, about its affiliation with other churches. Questions about a name, about a location, about schedules. There would be questions about the order and the content of our worship services. And of greatest of importance of all would be the question, just who is the God that we're going to be worshiping? What is he like? At first, it seems a silly question. We think we're going to worship God, and that's it. But then we realize that the world is filled with beings called God. And yet, beings that differ radically from one another, who would be so foolish as to insist that the God of the Muslims is the same as the God of the Jews? Or that the God of the Hindus is the same as the God of the animists? And even groups calling themselves Christians hold views of God that are so different from one another, if one of them is true, then the others must be false. And so the questions that we're asking in this hypothetical new church isn't as silly as it first seemed. And we need to ask together, who is the God that we gather to worship? What is he like? What is the truth about God? Is he a God like the one worshipped by the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? A God who has to be awakened from his slumber in order to attend to the needs of his people. Is he a God like that of the deists? A God of growing popularity among churches to our left, who once created the universe but then went on vacation, leaving the management of human affairs up to man. Is he the God of the liberals in the church? One whose truth is constantly evolving, who calls every person his child, who never performs miracles, who never speaks definitively, who regards each religion as more or less the equal of every other, who condemns no one and receives all unto himself at the grave. Or is he the popular God of many evangelicals whose hands are tied by the faithlessness or the weakness or the ignorance of people, a God who is unable to accomplish his purposes without their cooperation, a God who pleads for people to call to him, come to him, and weeps over those who refuse. Is he a God who has no plan for history, but waits for the requests of his people to act and is more likely to respond if many ask him than just two or three? Is he a God who transmits his mercy primarily through the work of human intermediaries and channels his grace only through the ceremonies of the church? Is he a God who sent his son to die for the sins of people and who rewards them with eternal life if their faith and their works measure up to his expectations? Or is he a God who is the omnipotent creator of the universe and the sovereign Lord of history? the one who has spoken finally and definitively on the pages of Scripture and decisively calls people to himself in salvation. The lists of options could go on and on, but the point is made. Just to say that we're worshiping God 
is not to say that we're worshiping the real God or even the same God. I remind you that Jesus assigned a very high priority to religious truth. He said, I am the truth. He said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth. He said, you must worship God in truth. When we gather for worship, it's important that we have a clear idea of the character and the acts and the will of the God that we've gathered to praise. And as important that those impressions of God be shaped by nothing other than what he says about himself on the pages of his word. From his throne in the heavens, God calls out to all men once made in his image and subject to his rule and his judgment. And his counsel to them is this. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing and know that the Lord, he is God. And an ancient believer called out to those who shared his faith, all who wanted to know and to please God. His words are an invitation. They are an exhortation. They are a command. To those people and to us, he says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. In obedience, let us worship God. Let us worship God in spirit. Let us worship God in truth. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that we might never be found taking this hour that we have together for granted or treating it lightly. Help us to be as faithful as you call us to be and showed us faithfulness in the life of your son. But more than that, we pray, our God, that you would whet our appetite to know more and more of you, that increasingly we might be found worshiping you in spirit and in truth as Jesus said we must. This we ask in his name. Amen.